Welcome back to All Else Equal, a podcast connecting undergrads with Notre Dame expertise. So I love the question this week, um, but it does put me down into this uh, this pit of like an existential crisis, which I am prone to get into and not be able to get out of. Um, so let's listen to the question this week. Hi, Jason and Forrest. This is Kate Haney, and I'm a sophomore with double majoring in economics and political science. I've been thinking a lot about the criticisms for economics. I was wondering if you could address how useful it is as a tool for social engineering. Thank you. Yeah, there is this notion of economics as a type of social engineering, and usually that term is used in a negative way. It makes me think about the meme, you know this meme, uh, that a bunch of old, rich, white men are standing around laughing, uh, and they're saying, and then we told them it would trickle down. (laughs) I do love that meme. Um, so Kate's definitely right in at least a couple of senses. So one is that economics is definitely influential in public policy decisions. And two, that economics is a field that's subject to a lot of criticism, uh, both from people within the field and outside the field. So I'd love to hear what uh, Jim uh, Sullivan has to say about this. Jim is the Gilbert F. Schaefer College Professor of Economics in the Department of Economics. A subset of the Department of Arts and Letters. (laughs) And one of the co-founders of the Wilson Sheehan Lab for Economic Opportunities. Regular All Else Equal uh, podcast listeners will know about Leo from previous episodes with the managing director, Heather Reynolds, and our favorite Leo Research associate, Emily Marola. Also prone to existential crises. <laughs> uh, that's another topic. So Jim is a labor economist uh, who's doing a lot of influential work in his own research, which is dovetailed with all of his different efforts at Leo. Um, just the other week, he testified in front of the House Ways and Means Committee about health profession opportunity grants. His research with Bruce Meyer and Jihoon Han on real-time poverty estimates has had a ton of uh, publicity. Uh, and all sorts of different media outlets, especially during COVID, as we were really kind of concerned about how do we measure poverty in real time. Yeah, I can't think of anyone better to talk about the merits and shortcomings of economics really as a tool to influence public policy as policymakers you know, hope to make people better off. Uh, thank you so much for being here today. Uh, we appreciate you being on the podcast with Forrest and I. Great to be here. Yeah, thanks for inviting me. Yeah, thanks, Jim. So there's a recent article in the New York Times that praises um, the UK for large reductions they've seen in child poverty. And a quote from the article kind of struck me. And this is the quote. It's not rocket science. You give families money and kids benefit. So I guess the first question for you and kind of for Leo is, like, why are you wasting all of your time doing this if it's not rocket science? <laughs> Oh, wow. Maybe I should stop doing it. I don't, you know, I, it, that's a fair question. Um, you know, I, I think that she's half right in, in saying that, um, you know, the point that you give families income and uh, the kids are going to benefit, um, I think is a really important one. And one in where, where uh, the economic research is really starting to, has developed in the last several years to show this. So we done a number of, of uh, studies recently uh, that are you know, well-identified, good, uh, you know, econometrically sound studies that show when you give families income, uh, they're less likely, even in the US, which are in, in, a, in a rich country, you give families, low-income families income and their kids do better. The, we see uh, fewer low birth weight children 
We see uh, that their test scores are better in, when they're in school. Um, we see that they have, have better educational attainment. Um, and, um, and so this is, there's like a growing body of evidence, I think, that, that is really promising and suggesting the returns to, to providing income uh, to particularly low-income families. Um, where I would qualify and push back quite a bit is the, the sense that that means the answer is simple, right? Because the answer is really anything but simple. And, and, and if there's anything we've learned at LEO, um, it's that people who are struggling to make ends meet and to put food on the table are in really complicated situations where income is not gonna be the, the solution to, to, to the problem. Um, and, and so I think that um, there, there are some real benefits to thinking about the returns to, to, to transferring income, uh, but we need to think much more broadly. And that's, that's kind of uh, the motivation for what we do at LEO. I guess that leads me into uh, a second question that I have that is, um, I guess it's kind of two questions. One is, you know, it seems like in the 80s and the 90s, the pendulum kind of swung to this emphasis on, you know, social support programs should encourage work, right? So like, it feels like there was this, this rising tide of like, we shouldn't just like give families money, we should encourage them to work so they can provide for themselves. Um, I was wondering if you, where do you kind of see the current state of welfare programs and like where they're, what the, um, what types of incentives are we trying to provide? And like, how does Leo complement that or provide a substitute for like the traditional social safety net in the US? Yeah, so there's a couple of things there um, maybe I'll highlight on. So um, one on, on this question about work, I mean, it, it, it's without a doubt that there was strong emphasis, bipartisan emphasis on creating more incentives to work in the social safety net. Um, and that meant ending welfare as we know it uh, under the Clinton administration, but also expansions to programs like the Earned Income Tax Credit that really focused on uh, increasing the returns to working, but not providing any, any resources to people uh, who don't work. And, um, but the important thing to recognize there um, is that, uh, you, you know, that's not gonna provide the safety net for all individuals and families, right? So work, although I think is important and we could talk about the importance of the dignity of, of work, um, uh, the, you know, a well-structured social safety net uh, can't be only pro-work because for some people it just, it, that just doesn't work. And it speaks back to this point I was making about the complexity of poverty. So let me talk a little bit about like the, the federal safety net um, as it exists and maybe as it evolved, you know, you have, uh, you're coming out of the, the Great Depression. And uh, as a result of that, you know, we launch a number of programs that try to address, you know, all the, the, the uh, deprivation we saw as a result of the Great, the great Recession. So you have, you, you have a, um, a cash welfare program that is launched. And then um, we, we start to launch uh, programs later on out of the New Deal that, that provide food subsidies in terms of food stamps. And, and then we recognize people don't have good housing. So we have a housing subsidies program. And what we end up getting is um, a piecemeal of programs that try to address various immediate needs, whether it's you know, a shortage of, of income, it's, you need food, you need, you need housing, uh, you need healthcare. Um, 
And each of those are, can be critically important in their own right, but uh, none of them tries to address the underlying causes of poverty, right? So it, you know, why, why can't you afford to pay rent? Why did you just get evicted and you're homeless? Why can't you put food, food on the table? Uh, giving you a food subsidy is critically important to help you put food on the table today, but, but does that solve the problem? And, um, and the federal safety net evolved uh, really to design, or to address those immediate needs, um, but not to address those underlying causes. And that's really where Leo comes in. Um, so getting back to like the very first question about, you know, is it really, it's not rocket science. Um, it is rocket science in that if we wanna start thinking about the underlying causes and start to address those causes, um, you really need to be working on much more customized, individualized services. And that's what people, that's what nonprofit social service providers are doing on the front lines of poverty. So I think, you know, we want to address um, some common criticisms of economics as social engineering, whether it's thinking about it, this very kind of blunt federal level, you know, how are we spending a trillion dollars to combat poverty or on the, the kind of the more micro level, you know, more specific to Leo. Um, can I just ask you like, we, we, something that I'm curious about as you're talking is like, when you talk about the fundamental reasons people are in poverty, like what are some examples of what you mean by that, that like can't be addressed by like things like cash transfers and incentives to work and things like that? Yeah, uh, there are uh, so many of them. Uh, you know, one of the things I think we've we've uh, learned a lot about in the last few decades uh, from economists and from psychologists and other social scientists is that investments in children uh, are critically important, and particularly at a very young age. And um, so, one of the reasons why we see people in poverty is because of a lack of investment in children at an early age. I mean, the mere fact that uh, when you test to the extent that we can kindergarten readiness, that we already see sharp disparities in kindergarten readiness uh, across the income distribution, it's just shocking, right? It's just like the, 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 they're already behind, right? And uh, there are prospects as, you know, Heckman will tell you Jim Heckman will tell you is their prospects are their lot in life is almost set by the time they, they finish finish kindergarten. It's going to be really hard to offset that. And um, so a, a lot of the reasons why people are in poverty um, are uh, the situations that they that they kind of found themselves in from the very beginning. Right. And so they were never really given an opportunity. Um, but then there's this other set that is kind of more the the bad luck, right, uh, set of, of poverty. Well, both are bad luck, but the bad luck shock that happens later in life. So you could imagine um, the uh, person who becomes a really good uh, lathe operator, uh, you know, in the automobile industry in Detroit, and then all those jobs disappear, right? And so I'm not really good at anything else, but I was really good at that. And so I'm 45 years old, what do I do? Right. And and that uh, that becomes another cause of poverty that, uh, you know, giving them food stamps or giving them house, uh, sub, housing subsidies 
will certainly help address the immediate need, but it's not going to address the, the that underlying cause. Yeah, that's like, a, and as you were talking about the first point that reminded me of, we had Chloe Gibbs on for actually our, our first episode, a professor in the economics department. She was talking partly about some of these intergenerational effects. So it's not just like, it's not just that, you know, that impact on those kids that aren't ready for kindergarten ends with them. Like it ends with, you know, or who knows where it ends. Yeah. No, so, yeah, that's right. I, I don't know if you are able to answer this and it's okay if you're, if you're not, but you know, I'm just curious why, you know, the, the New York going back to that you know, article praising the UK, I, you know, would you then say that just by throwing kind of money at the situation or giving families money is kind of akin to kind of a doctor just treating the symptoms and not necessarily getting at the underlying kind of disease? And would we suspect that there's going to be some persistent, you know, issues happening in social systems outside of the United States that just continue to give money to, you know, families? Yeah, so there's a there's a, a fallacious argument that I've heard people make that that goes like this. Uh, we spend about a trillion dollars a year in means tested transfers to low income individuals in, in this country. And if you if you just took all of that money and you gave it to you gave enough of it to every family such that they got to the poverty line, we would overnight get rid of poverty. We'd have zero poverty in the United States. And I've, I've seen people make that argument and then, a, and then a whole crowd of people are like, wow, why don't we do that? Why don't we just wipe out poverty overnight? And that gets back to the, well, you know, this it's simple, let's just give them money, right? To, to, to solve the problem. Um, and the, the real complexity in that is, well, first, I don't think anybody thinks that if we did that, there'd be no more foster care, there'd be no more crime, right? There'd be no more homelessness. Um, because it's not because they don't have income alone that's explaining, explaining how they get, in, get into those situations. Um, and, and so uh, the, the other complication with this is the fact that some people in poverty have extreme needs, right? That end up leading to a lot of the costs that we have in the federal safety net. A good example is you know, somebody who uh, is disabled and high, has high medical costs and therefore exacts a big toll on the Medicaid program, which is you know, our large, most expensive uh, means-tested uh, program and is disproportionately targeted uh, that the dollars go to people with, with very high needs. Um, and uh, and, giving, and give, taking away that person's uh, you know, medical uh, health insurance and giving them $17,000 is gonna put them in a really bad situation, right? So it's, so it's just not, not that simple uh, to, to, to do this. Um, let me give you an example of a Leo. I think a Leo project might kind of speak to this uh, idea of, of addressing the complexities. That's great. Um, and and one of them, it's one that I really like. We we're, we're just we just got the results uh, recently. And um, so so uh, we know that if that education is really important for your future income uh, and marketability in in the, in the labor market. So the, the the worst outcomes economically in this country are for people who drop out of high school, right? And what I didn't know until recently is that if you're a 25-year-old in the United States without a high school degree, in most states, you can't get a high school degree. You can't go back to high school. And, uh, and so, and it's kind of, that's because of state statute. And so there's been these models that have developed that uh, they've worked with the state to, 
to build a credentialing that actually is a high school degree. It's not a GED. Okay, that's what I was wondering. A GED, you know, is a high school equivalency diploma, but without, you, you just take tests, you don't go to school. And it's well documented that the earnings for GED are low, that you just don't get the return to it. It's not the same thing as a high school degree. Going back to Heckman, it's the non-equivalence of high school equivalence, right? That is his famous statement. So, um, so it would be really, it could be potentially helpful to find a way to give these individuals uh, a, an actual high school degree. The ex Enter Goodwill Excel Center in Indianapolis that designed this model that takes, you know, it's mostly adult males um, who uh, have dropped out of high school. Uh, it uh, gives them an opportunity, as negotiated with the state, the opportunity to credential a high school degree. It gives them a high school degree, but they're actually going to high school. And at the same time, they're getting uh, comprehensive case management, coaching, and mentoring to help them cross that finish line. And recognizing that if you just had a program that said, oh, here, here, here's an easy way to get a high school degree, that's kind of just, uh, you know, throwing a, uh, a Band-Aid on the solution. If you instead step back and say, well, the reason they don't have a high school degree is because they're dealing with a substance abuse issue or they're dealing with, uh, you know, a criminal justice background uh, and they're dealing with um, learning disabilities. And and uh, the need to play, pay child support. I mean, it gets really complicated. And a program that recognizes that everybody's situation is different and that they're gonna need a lot of individualized support to cross the finish line um, is gonna be critically important for success. And the, and the really neat thing about this LEO study is what we did is we looked we, for some quasi-random reasons, some people get the, that enroll in the program get the degree and some don't. And so we, we then link the, those that go through this program to uh, earnings records. And what we show is, and we, we can track their earnings afterwards. Those that get this high school degree see a 35% increase in earnings. Uh, or, and that's over the next five years. It's uh, relative to the group that yeah, doesn't. That doesn't. And so, so what it's showing is that a program like this can uh, really move the needle for a very difficult population, actually push back on Heckman, right? Because Heckman's basically saying that, you know, if you haven't invested in these people by the age five, there's not much we can do, right? And this is showing actually there is something we can do. And the evidence is really important because, well, they're now, the Excel Center is using the evidence of their impact and they're replicating in states all across the country. And what I would love to see is a national Excel program that's really motivated by the evidence of impact. That's awesome. Um, yeah, that is because we keep we hear so often, you know, when we talk to people in Leo that a lot of these programs uh, and kind of the treatments that you're providing are so localized to a community and it's hard to kind of expand them and scale them up. It's nice to hear that there's actually a program that feels like it can be scalable, right? At the national it level. is. I, I'm glad to hear you mentioned scale because uh, that is the single biggest challenge, right? That 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 uh, and so so that point is certainly true. Uh, I would say the Excel Center is is an exception. Uh, in, in that case. So I guess that leads us to, we have a kind of a list of criticisms we'd like to hear kind of how, uh, how sympathetic you are to them. Um, so, you know, you, you just mentioned that um, for this program, you followed them for five years, you saw persistent increases in earnings. I think the number you used was 35%. Um, we can measure some things, right? And like, that's how we do econometrics. We, we know we, we, we have data, we have economic questions, we have theory, and you know we try and put those things to, 
things together to try and say something about, you know, how people behave. How sympathetic are you to the critique of this idea that we put too much emphasis on the things we can measure and not enough emphasis on the things we can't measure? Uh, well, if this was on a spectrum of, of, you know, from very to not sympathetic at all. Um, yeah, might, that's great. <laughs> I might be uh, slightly sympathetic on this one. Um, I think it makes a really important point, right? And, and just that we need to be humble about the fact that we can't measure everything. And that as soon as we start thinking we know all the answers because, because of the evidence we're generating, I think we, we're, we're overstepping. And um, let me give you an example. Uh, an area that, that we're really interested in because we think it's important and because a lot of our provider partners are doing it is um, senior companion programs. So we're aging population. We have a lot of, of older individuals living by themselves. There's you know, growing rates of depression. This, is, this was only made worse by the pandemic, but, but even in the pre-pandemic world, um, this was a really big issue. And so there's all these senior companion programs popping up where they're providing a volunteer to go and check in and to develop a relationship. So this person has real human contact, which we know now more than ever that how critically important that is. Um, you know, what's, what's the outcome there? I, I mean, I'm inclined to think that's a really interesting program. We should be yeah. doing it. That's great. <laughs> but what are we going to measure? You know, as economists, we're going to measure mortality, right? That's, that's, you know, that, that's something we can quantify, right? And it might be that that has no effect on mortality, but I, but that's not going to tell me that that program doesn't work, right? What do we, we, there might be something that we could get on a, get at on a survey, you know, some like how how are you feeling? Are you depressed? And so that's, there's lots of things that we can we might be able to measure. But I just think that there's there's something like uh, about that human connection that will be hard to measure that will be critically important. And so for that reason, I think this criticism is important. But then I I, I say only slightly sympathetic because I think that. Um, you don't want to miss the fact that uh, we can measure a lot of things. And in fact, there has just been an explosion in opportunities to be able to measure thing, things that we could never measure before. We used to be limited to using surveys to capture information, which is both costly uh, and, and inaccurate because it's hard, hard to track people down or, or, or sometimes get accurate answers. Um, but now with administrative data, I mean, what, what outcomes do we want to know when we're measuring the impact of poverty programs? We want to know employment. We want to know earnings. We want to know recidivism. We want to know health outcomes by whether or not you check into a hospital. We want to know educational attainment. I can get every one of those pieces of information from administrative data now. And um, so the opportunity to measure impact is tremendous. And I would emphasize that while acknowledging, remaining humble to the fact that we can't measure everything. But this idea that, that we place too much emphasis on statistical significance, that like a, a p-value of 0.05 uh, is somehow like much more valuable than a p-value of 0.06 or 0.1 is much more valuable uh, than 0.11. <laughs> yeah, that's that's an interesting one. Um, you know, uh, I know, you know, Deirdre McClowski, who, who, who has kind of like championed this, this uh, criticism. Uh, and I remember hearing it from Deirdre when I was in graduate school a few years ago, uh, maybe <laughs> more than a few years ago. And, um, and I will say I was a healthy skeptic then. So Deirdre McClowski is an economic historian 
And I thought, you know, how convenient that an economic historian who has really small data sets and all her p-values are big, right? <laughs> can't measure something precisely, wants to, to you know, say that p-values aren't important. And um, I don't think I've come full circle, but I've come, I've come around quite a bit on this. My, Have my you? Okay. And, um, and, and so I, I kind of wanted a little bit both ways. So, so first, I think it's critically important to have a benchmark, right? So that it's not the wild west, that we need to be able to say um, that and strive for precision in what we're saying, right? So we, we, that there, there needs to be some accountability for accuracy. And so that, that I, I'm not for, you know, saying whatever p-value uh, you want is, is okay. Um, but at the same time, um, you know, What's happened as a as, as because of this this hyper focus on on precision? There's a number of things that have happened. So uh, one is uh, p hacking, which uh, which so because we set 0.05 as this arbitrary level uh, that you need to get below in order to say that this is a precise estimate, um, we find a lot of estimates at 0.049. Right, and yeah, that's right. published in journals. <laughs> not and, so many at point five oh one. That is not exactly. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's a big drop off point oh five, and you know there's a couple of things going on there. One is, you know, uh, we're running a million regressions and, and handpicking the ones that that have the the right p values, and the other is that journals will reject at point oh point oh five one, but not at point oh four nine, um, and uh, and I think that that's we don't want to be in that world. Um, but the other thing is that, uh, you know, because of that concern and this worry about people uh, saying that something uh, is significant that, that, that really in truth is not, um, there have been all these new innovations in econometrics about adjusting for multiple hypotheses um, and correcting, you know, uh, doing corrections for those kinds of things. Um, and what it's, what it's ended up doing is making it really hard to, uh, for, for journals for one, but also kind of the broader audience to recognize that there's really important information in studies that might not have p-values of 0.05. And I'd hate to throw all of that out. Yeah, and I guess uh, one other thing that we're, we're trying to do is we'll have like, um, a, you know the word for this and I don't, it's like, you know, you, you set up a plan before you set up a randomized control trial. Like here are the thing, here are the outcomes I'm going to measure, here are the regressions I'm going to run. And you do that before you collect the data that we have some sort of accountability uh, and your p-hacking is at least harder in that case. Yeah, so that's a pre-analysis plan. Yeah. Um, and that's a little bit uh, of the, you know, the uh, precision police going too far. You think so? Uh, I do, so well, so, I think pre-specifying is great, right? But the uh, what what they end up doing is saying, well, you can only pre-specify one outcome, right? Which seems oh. what that does then, or otherwise you have to adjust your uh, hypothesis tests so that the standardizing your hypothesis tests uh, for multiple hypotheses. And what that's doing has, has this weird incentive. It's like, okay, I think that there's ten really different out uh, interesting outcomes, but I'm only going to pick one. Uh, and call that my primary outcome in, in, in advance. And what if you know? What if you're looking at a prisoner reentry program, and you you pick recidivism, right? And that ends up. It turns out the program has no effect on recidivism, but has a huge effect on employment. Right? Like, and they say, well, we don't care about your effect on employment. It's not precise because it wasn't in your 
you have to make all these adjustments because it wasn't in your pre-analysis plan. So I just, we can go too far with those kinds of things, um, even though I think it is, it is critically important to prevent this kind of p-hacking stuff. No, that's interesting. And I guess I, I should have made this note at the beginning that when we talk about p-values of 0.05 and 0.06, you know, if you have something, a p-value less than 0.05, you can claim 95% confidence. Uh, but if you have a p-value that's higher than that, say 0.06, you can't claim 95% confidence. So these things are inversely related with statistical significance. All right. Um, I guess like the last criticism we wanted to address is, you know, all the other social sciences are like very jealous of economics being so cool and so useful. <laughs> How do we deal with the jealousy of the other social sciences? And I actually, let me rephrase that and make it more even handed. Kind of, um, there's a criticism that too much attention by policymakers is a paid to the results from economics and economists and not enough uh, is paid to uh, like the thoughts and findings of other social sciences. Uh, so I, there, is that a criticism or, or an acknowledgement? First, I think it's kind of, <laughs> uh, it is a fact that policymakers pay a lot of attention to economists, uh, more so than other social scientists. Uh, I, you know, I like to, um, when I, first day of class in intermediate micro, I talk about how the president of the United States has, you know, an economics team and a council of economic advisors. Uh, and uh, there's no council of sociologists or of psychologists or political <laughs> scientists, right? And uh, now, that that kind of attitude, I think, can rub the other social sciences <laughs> the wrong way. But but really, the the point is that economics is relevant, right? And um, and the first thing I'll say is it's not relevant because economists are great marketers, right? It's not like we're out there you know, like people are saying, "Oh, have you heard that eloquent economist?" We need to. We're, we need we're to actually terrible, terrible marketers. We're That's why we're in economics departments. We, we're not in business we, departments. <laughs> business and, and, uh, exactly, and so we're, we're, we're it's not in our DNA. So it's not because of that. Um, so I mean, take a step back and say one of the reasons why um, economists get so much attention is because what we're working on. Is incredibly incredibly relevant uh, to the decisions that, that people are making, and and I think we also have to be uh, have to acknowledge that we got a little lucky in that we have a bit of a specialization in um, rigorously analyzing data, and we are in an era where the opportunities and the new opportunities to do that uh, are tremendous. Um, so I think you know I think it's the the first thing I'll say is. Yes, economists are getting a ton of attention, and I would and I would say that's to some degree justified because of the you know the relevant work that we're doing. Um, but then I think it's really important to like economists need to be more humble about it because I think I think that it is not to the exclusion of the other social sciences. It's it's it should be in complement or in complement to the other social sciences. Let me give you a couple of of examples. Um, you know, so I, I work a lot on, on understanding poverty and how it's changed over time and thinking about it using family income and family consumption. And probably the best motivation for, for the original question about income and consumption-based measures of well-being comes from early work from a well-known sociologist, uh, Catherine Eden, and, and along with Laura Lane, 
who wrote this compelling book about making ends meet, which which went into housing projects in in several uh, uh, urban communities and and interviewed very low income single moms about their income and their consumption. And they were the first ones to realize that income uh, fell far short of consumption. And what, what sociologists do well, particularly qualitative sociologists do well, is they develop relationships and trust and then can conduct qualitative interviews to get answers that, that we can't get in surveys or administrative data, right? And so, so they, through collecting that information, they're able to reconcile some of that uh, through all these, these odds and ends income that, that, that surveys weren't, weren't capturing. Um, a more, more uh, timely example is that, uh, so we have uh, one of the leading experts on um, housing and eviction on, in our faculty uh, at economics in Rob Collinson, right, who's, who's, who's doing a lot of great work. The work on eviction and all the interest in eviction is I think justifiably attributed to Matt Desmond's work uh, so he's a well-known sociologist at, at Princeton who, you know, he went into the field and he documented all of this and interviewed people about like, why is this happening and, and what does this mean and what are the costs? And it laid the groundwork for so many interesting questions in economics, right? And so I think that, the, that I mentioned sociologists, uh, maybe I'll just quickly mention, uh, you know, a Kahneman who won, a psychologist who won the Nobel Prize in economics because of his pioneering work on you know, individual behavior. And so kind of like uh, was the foundations for behavioral economics. And um, so we really need to recognize the compliments across the social sciences rather than, than establishing any kind of dominance. That's great. Uh, we have one final question to ask you. Yeah, I think it kind of dovetails really nicely to the question kind of we just asked. And that's kind of, have you seen economists maybe or economics in general kind of overextend, you know, itself as a field or individually as, as, as people? And, you know, where would you like to see economics maybe applied more, right? If we're actually not even uh, approaching, you know, some places. Yeah, uh, you know, my as a, a card carrying applied microeconomist, you know, of course, I'm going to go after macroeconomics. There we go. Talk Good. About, talk about, uh, <laughs> I love it. Um, well, actually, let me do one of both. Uh, so I think it, the um, there's probably no harder thing we try to do in economics than to model the aggregate economy, right? Because there's so many moving parts. And I think where we might have overextended is the confidence within which we think we understand the macroeconomy and therefore the ability to predict. Um, one, one uh, you know, I think example of this is, um, is with the great moderation. So the great moderation is this idea that there's a lot of economic volatility in the United States. We have business cycles, but that volatility has, has you know, no, gone down noticeably over time. And one of the main explanations that I have heard this is in, in the past from macroeconomists was we've gotten much better at monetary policy. And so we just, we, we, we know how to handle it now, right? So we, we, we just don't make mistakes, right? And that was, the, <laughs> right. that was the running argument literally before the great recession. Like, right. Right? Like, yeah. I, I heard somebody, I heard somebody present that. I, and I never saw that person present that paper again, but, but it was like, <laughs> so, so, you know, it, I have a lot of respect for my macro colleagues because they're trying to do something that's really hard, right? And so, 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 but, but be, being being humble about what we can and cannot predict, I think, is really important. On the micro side, um, you know, 
economists have gotten really good at internal validity, right? We learn in our econometrics classes about how to identify causal relationships. And what, what has happened as a consequence of that is that we are really hyper-focused on a narrow uh, question that we can answer very carefully and very accurately. And so where we might be overextending as a result of that is generalizability. So, and this is, a, this is a criticism or maybe a limitation of LEO, for example. Like, so what do we learn from randomized control trials, right? We have to be careful about saying like, you know, what I learned from the Excel Center study is that we should have high school degrees for 25 year olds all across the country. Uh, I don't think we're ready to say that yet, right? We, we, we need to study that and need to learn a lot more. So we gotta be careful about overextending in terms of generalizability. Mm. Um, in terms of, of where we, I'd like to see more, um, you know, the easy thing is that we're, we're in the midst of a data revolution and, and economists are, are uh, you know, ahead of the curve on this and predisposed to, to, to taking advantage of that. And so I think that we're gonna see a lot more great uh, work using big data sets from economists. Um, but I think if we're really going to leverage like comparative advantage, like the, where economists have a comparative advantage over, you know, data scientists, engineers, and, and, and other social scientists, um, is in, in the understanding of how markets work, and in particular, uh, why markets fail. And so I, I you know, where I see economists like kind of doing things that other people can't do is like, how do we address like a market for organ donation? Or how do we address the market for matching, you know, uh, eighth grade students in New York City to which high school they go to in a way that, that maximizes, uh, you know, welfare, right? Th th that's economist bread and butter. Those kinds of social problems, economists can add value in ways that other disciplines can't. And so I'd like to see them doing more of that. Yeah, if you think what like Al Roth, just from sort of having this idea that people, like that strangers can give kidneys to other strangers. Um, yeah. Like, that idea alone and his ability to like um, uh, kind of popularize it, like it's, he's like personally saved thousands of lives. Like that's an amazing thing. Yeah, and you know, and I, you know, as much as I think economists have an advantage in using data, I think there's other people that are really good at using data and even, even identifying causal effects. Um, but understanding and modeling markets using, you know, using kind of structural economic models um, is something that's extreme, tremendously powerful in Al Roth and many others have shown that. Um, and, and I think we should continue to leverage that for good. Well, I'm glad our jobs are not redundant and right. that there's still some value we can, you know, provide here. Um, Jen, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with Forrest and I. We had a, a, you know, a great time listening to you talk about Leo and everything that you're doing with Leo and, you know, giving us hope for, for economists in the future. Great, and thanks for, for doing this. I, I think it's great that you're uh, getting the word out uh, about what economists other other uh, researchers are doing and, and getting undergraduates engaged in this conversation. So thanks, thanks for that. I really do love hearing Jim talk about economics. He's someone I would consider an economist economist. No, I agree. In the wise words of Neek Mill, there are levels to this. Love it. Well, that's it from us today. Uh, we want to thank Jim and the listeners. As always, if you want to submit a question, come on the podcast, or just feel, just want to reach out and say hello, send us an email at allelseequalpodcast at gmail.com. 